Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. This week's guest is a thought leader who's had a number of roles at the very highest levels of the sport. There's some great knowledge I don't think we've really thought about and exploited in coaching. And the more I spend in this environment, I just see an opportunity to really rethink how we do it. It's not just about the work, it's the work away from the work as well. So I, th- I think we need to reframe it a little bit and therefore put the value to the offload, for if we call it that, as much as to the load. Marginal gains wasn't about, was never about those tiny little future thinking little projects. They are always a very small element of the portfolio of things you're trying to do to win. Scott Draw is the current director of sport at Millfield School, one of the UK's leading independent schools. Before that, he was head of research and innovation at UK Sport and also held positions as athletic performance manager at the Rugby Football Union and worked in the Sky Performance Hub in cycling. His varied experiences made this a wide-ranging and incredibly interesting conversation covering innovation, technology, leadership, teaching, coaching, learning environment and a whole lot more. I first met Scott in his role at UK Sport almost 15 years ago as I asked him to help me tap into the amazing work being done there across the UK Sport Innovation and Research Network to help the England Sevens programme I was running at the time. But we don't start with that. My opening gambit was to ask him what's currently on his mind. The things I've been fascinated by is what we can learn from teaching to apply to coaching and vice versa. So and I spent a lot of time reading, again, the classic educational literature about learning. And it's really challenged my thinking about the way I'll describe it, is how we periodize learning and development. Because I don't, I don't think in development terms, and maybe even sport enough, we think about it in the right way. It's too organic and too off by chance. And there's a real difference between performance and learning. You can get performance and you learn nothing, and vice versa. And whereas a development environment, so how do you periodize a moment of learning over a six week half term? You know, like you would physically, if you think about it in the same way that you do that in the gym or managing physical load, how do you do that with cognitive load? And so how do you design that? And actually, there's some fascinating fundamental work, which I don't think is well understood in coaching. And like that, that cross transfer between those principles in teaching in the classroom across to the sports but and vice versa you know and what i fundamentally got to that point that the best the best coaches are the best teachers and the best teachers coach if that makes sense so i, th- I think there's something that we really really missed if i look back at the world it came from in well spending all my time in elite high performing type environments and i look at when we talk about all those technical tactical aspects of i, I don't think we really understood it or really relied on some of that thinking and I, I do think there's some unique opportunities. And, like with our, and with our coaches here, we're really trying to explore that because you're fundamentally trying to form long-term memories. And, you know, if this short-term memory box that we've got gets loaded over quite quickly, you've got to think about all of that all the time. So, you know, when's it going to be most receptive? Uh, what else is going on in people's lives? How are you going to make that stuff stick? How are you going to revisit it? How do you ensure it becomes part of your permanent etching in your brain so you can call on it when it really matters and I do think there's some opportunities in there for people to fundamentally think how they do that I, I, I think too much happens organically just because we do a lot of it if that makes sense so yeah we're gonna we're training 12 14 hours a week eventually it's going to get there without any deliberate thought so yeah that's what's on my mind I know that's a big complex one but I, 
No big complex thing. There's some great knowledge I don't think we've really thought about and exploited in coaching. And the more I spend in this environment, I just see an opportunity to really rethink how we do it. Do you think there's a big step either way between coaching and teaching? Do you think there's much difference between the two? No, no. I, I, I mean, they're, they're different, different perspectives to it. I think um, the way I try to think about it, I think the teaching bit's very knowledge-based. Uh, and I talk coaching about coaching behaviours. And so there's a massive overlap between them. It's about when you use each one and at what time. It's that whole you know, concept of it depends. But I think, yeah, I think they're in that toolbox and it's just the essence of what you're trying to do in that perspective. So they need to work together. Cognitive load is something that's been in my sphere of thinking recently. I've been trying to measure when a team and individual is getting stressed. Have you got any, any thoughts on whether you see any cognitive load measurements down the track coming both for coaches yeah for coaches and 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 for you as a leader to have a look at the people that are around you and see when they're getting a bit stressed and whether you've got something to fall back on not just your instincts intuitively i completely agree with it's a principle and i'm so yes the principle of it i really agree with i just don't quite know whether how to measure it um and of course you know 20 years ago we couldn't measure the brain so the emergence of mri and dynamic mri now means we know now so much more about how the brain develops as well so i'm pretty sure the tools methods and approaches will emerge to get a better understanding of that intuitively you sort of know and i've the way i'll compare it is like being on a grand tour so the giro d'italia or anything like when you're in a really intense environment or you're in the olympic games that you sort of experience for a block of time how you self-manage your effort and your energy is really important. And how you plan and deliberately plan rest and recovery to clear your head is really important. I think intuitively we've all experienced that. Probably as you get a bit older, like I, my meditation's riding my bike, or have I had a nap, I can genuinely know that I feel I can go deeper in the way I'm thinking and operating. So my own personal experience is that what I've seen saying, there's definitely something in this. And that's the principle around how do you periodize your learning? Because if you're trying to do something when people are already got their brain full, you know, the bandwidth is full. You're not, it's not going to land. So therefore you need to prepare for it. And it's like no different. If, if you just use that analogy of physical training, because it's so easy to measure, I think that principle equally applies in this space. So I think you will be able to, I just don't know how to, and I haven't done enough reading and I'm sure people are going to get there, but it just makes a lot of logical sense. My own personal experiences and those that I see work exactly the same way and in the environment that I'm now in where in boarding school it's full gas you know and it is for six weeks we have seen in the data like what we call the three to four week peak as it is when you know behaviors massively change in young people we see an increase in injury incidents so you know if you're as as you're full gas from seven in the morning till nine at night you just get a feel and so and then how do you manage that how do you offset it so I've seen it in real life I wish I could measure it but I think we, you may, there may be indirect measures that show that it's happening, if that makes sense. And it, yeah, it may be the simplest tool is to ask somebody. Um, it may be there's some sim simple cognitive tests to, to understand how well people can focus, because I think the distractions of social media and tech and all those things. So there may be an indirect measure of it, because you know when you need to do deep work, as I call it, or deep thought, you're like, you know when you can do it. Um, I can recall like last night, I had, a, I had a really long day yesterday and I went home and I just shut my computer down for a couple of hours, managed to relax with family, had a cheeky nap. Um, and then like it's 8.30 and I felt like I could do deep work again. 
so yeah, maybe indirect measures of focus, maybe one way of doing it. I'm just bouncing ideas around me here. Well, I'm, I've got a few things that are bouncing off my head now. One of them is going back to, you did your PhD on injuries in football, right? Yeah. But I, I want to hold that thought and reverse back a little bit because say like you're in agreement probably to, to how I feel that people do have you know are overloaded sometimes cognitively and however keen they are to learn something it doesn't matter because it's just bouncing it's bouncing off and if you look perhaps at let's have a, a thought away from teaching into professional sport take a professional football club and you're say you know director of football there and you've got your staff or your athletes and you know that actually they're up for it they've they're, they're totally into the into what everyone's trying to do but they are cognitively overloaded and the benefit is for them to just uh, disappear for a few days the climate's hard to, to actually say that to someone because if you go to your boss and go actually so and so and so and so um they're not coming in next week because they're cognitively overloaded you're absolutely right about it potentially and you might get someone back that's going to be into their deep deep thought and into their deep work but the climate isn't, is it ready for that type of thinking yet? I think there definitely are. Yeah. Um, I guess you'll always get people at each end of the, the scale, won't you, in that sort of sense. But I think we therefore need to value rest, recovery, switch off as much as you do as physical effort. So like, no, like you'd, never, you'd never plan to do rest recovery sessions in some senses, but we need to value them as much as the work itself. Because you, if you don't value them, as much you won't get the benefit from the work that you've done so i think it needs to be seen on on that scale so it's not just about the work it's the work away from the work as well so i, th I think we need to reframe it a little bit and therefore put the value to the offload for if we call it that as much as to the load and it's um, otherwise without it it's no point doing the load you know so i, I think there certainly is um we need to reframe it in a slightly different way and recognize and value the fact that you will only get benefits and you'd be even smarter and you get more gain from having that in the next session. You know, do you want six sessions at 60% or do you want three at hundred percent? You know, and I think that's the, that's the sort of thinking. And so, you know, I'd naturally be going, give me the three at hundred percent, high, high quality, you know, absolutely going to make a massive difference to what they do as opposed to six sessions of mediocrity. No, thanks. You know, and, and, so I think we need to, yeah, I guess the principles reframe the, reframe the thought process around it. Yeah, I'd look, I don't know whether you just made that up on the spot, but when you said you, we've got to value the the offload as much as the load, that's that's something I'm going to be saying a lot of now. Thank you for that, Scott. Right, I did make it up as I go, so that's what this is. Yeah, no, well, there you go. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cracker. Um, we talk about RPEs, so for the listeners, and we'll try not, I, I try to make sure that if there's anything that um, the listener needs clarification on so rpe is your um is your rate of perceived exertion and so you might as a coach have a training session and you might ask the athletes or you might put down what you think how hard that session is i've now been thinking that we should be putting cognitive load measurements down as well and thinking well this this session i reckon i'm giving them this new thing at this level for this duration and um, so i think their cognitive load might be and it's arbitrary but it's given me some idea around patterns that I can go back and have conversations with coaches or athletes around I wonder if that's something that that you feel there could be some value in as well and linking to all of this because I'll give you some what if say for example at the training session where you're the example you gave do you give three quality 100% sessions where they're flat out and 
total quality or six mediocre ones well what happens if that's for the cognitive load but actually physically yeah they, they're all right they can keep going for those six but you know that you've got half of them cognitively they're not there yeah no it's um it's a really good question if i i'll take a step back when i was working with england rugby at the time prior to coming here and player development was probably where my passion really got in that a younger sort of age group um we spent time to think about what we call the holistic load and um, because actually in an environment like this and it'll be the same outside there are three elements to it for me there's your life load which is family, friends, peers, um, the cognitive load element, which in a school environment are defined as academic. And then I'll call it the sport load. You could have be physical, technical, that, that element of it. And so the thought process going around it was, if you think about that academic or academic load, cognitive load, was to try to create three relative scales and add them up and create a holistic scale at a simple basis. So in, in an academic perspective, what is the most intense full-on RPE 10 situation that you're going to face probably is during exam time so it was then so if that's that's the most difficult period how does everything else compare to it so if you go off to the library to do a bit of deep revision is that six you know versus a 10 and so so you know physically as well when you do a physical session like a 10 is your everyone knows what 10 is like when you've been there you're on your knees you know, you're it's you're in the hurt locker. You've been there longer than anybody else. You're close to vomiting. It's like a place you never want to go again. So you, you're always able to compare it in those situations. I think you can do the same around life load. So in an environment like this, life load will be your peer group, your friends in a boarding environment. Outside of that, it's media demands. Like if you think yourself in a pro environment, I think you can always think about those worst case situations. You're on the front page of the newspaper. You got the media chasing you, hounding you, like all of that stress of that. Um, and if you probably had those three together, one may go up. And so looking at them in that way, you know, if one's up. So this time of year for us is an exam period. We know that academic cognitive load is going north. We would offload on the other two. You know, so you'd have to think about God and the life load could be really stressful in the in the in the houses because there's some friendships that are broken up. So, again, individuals could look at those from that perspective. So I think you look at if you just in a very simple perspective, Rank them all is 10. What's your 10? And then on a daily basis or maybe a weekly basis, reflect back and how is that week in that perspective? And so I think if you look at it's like having three dials on your amplifier, isn't it? Um, you can never have all three up because you'll get real crap sound. So it's at, at what time when one's dialed up, how, which others have got to come down? And that that means really brilliant interdisciplinary thinking around all stakeholders around that individual, you know, lot, all, all those elements of it. But hopefully that gives you an articulation of the way I tried to think about it a really good version and for the life load you know for a, a top-end sportsman if they're making the headlines for good or bad reasons then as your as a coach or a director of performance you could look at that and go okay I've seen that and there is going to be a you know a, a load as a result but in this for the for the majority of people that will be listening to this pod and they will be working in teaching environments or not clubs that have got a full staff or even in relationships when you're looking at that life load where would you go to start to find the information come through quality quality dialogue with an individual i mean you obviously need to get to know somebody but i think that that subjective type response you get would is is where i would start i'm sure the science will improve where we get a really good idea of how to do that at some point um but I think that's the most logical place because if you have a good relationship with somebody, they'll explain what's going on in their life. But um, as the 
as the individual trying to understand the perspective of that player or student, whatever, in that sort of situation, I guess you really, you need to be really good at questioning skills. You know, uh, I think you need really good listening skills and you need to really understand and have a particular trust for that individual to validate those observations. It takes time, but I think really, really good coaches that have got that foundation will really understand that. And then through the right questioning, the right listening skills, the right probing skills, you should be able to get there. Because you know, ultimately, I can imagine, say, we we're having a conversation and we really got into it and I should be able to say to you, and so, you know, on a scale of 0 to 10, um, if 10 was this situation, where do you think you are? And I may already have had in my head that I think you're about seven or eight today. And if they say that, you sort of got validation of that. Um, so, yeah, that's the way it'd go. But that needs deep trust. Yeah. And if if I go back on your personal timeline, you did your, your BSc and then your MSc and then your PhD and you fitted in a PGCE um, as well. But the first time I think we ever met physically was in the late 2000s in Bath uh, when you were head of research and innovation at UK Sport. And I was head coach of the England Sevens team. And I think I came down with my physio and trainer, uh, Brett Davison, and probably my assistant coach. And we basically kind of tried to get anything off you that would help us be a little bit better and find out more around recovery and jet lag and preparation and load and all those sort of things. How did you and how, I mean, because you were there for over 10 years in a, a period of a hugely successful Olympic sport of which there were countless media pieces around the secret school club that was in British cycling and all the various technological and innovative stuff that we were doing over in, in that was that was very secretive but was adding to this feeling that we were just ahead of everybody else around the world I mean a how did you get that job because it's an amazing one and looking back at that how, how was your time there and what was your day-to-day like it's interesting if I look back now and reflect on the evolution of you know, the UK Olympic Paralympic system. When I moved into the system, things like the English Institute for Sport didn't exist. So it was those real early days. There was a central team within UK sport. We had lots of Aussies come across, you know, it was the evil of back end of Sydney, a central team. And I actually moved into the organisation, having just finished my PhD, but um, I had a very statistical background, strong statistical background because of the work I was doing in the epidemiology. And I moved into the organisation on that sort of analysis angle. So analysis, statistical, understanding trends, patterns, that was the original basis of which I sort of moved into. And I think those early days of the Olympic system were, they were a bit like a startup, is the way I describe it. Every national governing body had that mentality and drive just to absolutely go for it. And I think that's culture that existed at that time. And, and, you know, my naivety, um, as I was emerging, as the system was growing, and I was really fortunate as people were moving on and changes to to take roles up, I ended up heading up a research innovation program, which was me and one other. And that grew to be as it sort of is now. So there's a lot of serendipity to how that happened. But I think the system was growing up. It was years like it was a baby, you know, it wasn't even crawling. But I think the environment enabled that very entrepreneurial startup approach. And I was naive to what was going on, but I probably had that go getting, let's try stuff 
and was learning on the job. But I had brilliant people around me that enabled that to happen and national governing bodies and sports and coaches that are like, yeah, what have we got to lose? Um, I think people tend to be a lot more cautious now in that sense. But I think that environment enabled that to, to grow. So, and, and I think the other, during those early phases, I spent a lot of time studying internationally what other people are doing. And I looked inward towards the UK around what are our industrial super strengths as well. And you had like, we had Motorsport Valley, 80% of Formula One engineers were British. And it was trying to lock into this obvious expertise, industrial expertise that we had also to bring into the mix. Most inst international institutions, innovation for them was academic research. And I had a very different perspective on that just because of the pace that we had to move. So it was probably more, we ended up very much going more the I call it industrial R&D, where fundamentally you've got to solve a problem bloody quickly. Otherwise, you know, the thing's going to fall apart. So you're working, picking up existing expertise and applying it to your domain. So like when you go into, you know, really fortunate developer relationship, McLaren, BAE Systems, all these amazing organizations that had people that knew nothing about sport, but they were super smart and you'd present a problem. And I think that's what we're quite good at. They better bring their unique expertise to your context. Um, and they didn't need to understand the sport because coaches like yourself, Ben, knew their sport and you knew the contextual information, but you brought this brains trust to the table that would think about the problem really differently. And their mentality and mindset was, this is an academic publication. This is about solving a problem pretty quickly because we need to go faster. And that, that's the evolution of that sort of journey. And like we spent a lot of time initially around the tech space because British cycling were one of those sports at the time was Sir Dave Brailsford and Chris Boardman who had open door policy and wanted to go for things and like suddenly we were able to uh, a mentality to try stuff this brilliant expertise to start that journey and yet sort of created this catalyst and opportunity where people wanted to move really quickly and that and and their ego was parked outside they fundamentally wanted to make a difference to the individual athletes and were excited by the problem they were trying to solve. It wasn't about producing an academic output. And so you suddenly that ingredients mix meant, meant you could just progress really, really quickly. And I think like when we met, you sort of described that. So it was the same. You are really open minded to try things and invariably to bring new ideas to the table. You're fundamentally whoever you're trying to work with in that role. We're trying to change behaviours. And you often, what was more compelling was real life applied evidence from really high caliber individuals who decided to engage in a process had gone faster because of it. So if I'm sat in front of a coach from a sport like swimming and I'm sharing some nice academic data, you go, yeah, nice, that's really great. What about in my context? If I'm suddenly saying, well, we were looking at warm ups and maintaining heat and we did this stuff with England Sevens at the time, I remember all the, I still got all the pictures. And actually, here's Ben Ryan, and here's, here's the athletes, and this is what they were doing. Oh, look how much faster they went. It's like a bit more compelling to decide, actually, that looks really positive and it does make a difference. So I think we're able to, like the relationship that we sort of created at that time was about, like, you were willing to explore. You sort of trusted the expertise around you. It made logical sense. It was trying to solve challenges and problems that you thought you had and wanted to move forward. And therefore, it was truly in-field applied investigations done in a systematic way. And I think it's interesting. So the work that we did together with you helped us take that into other sports. Like in all that work is like, you know, that's God, that was done in the early 2000s. And like in those days, it's now like it's still going on. So you, you think about pioneers in some aspect of it. The, just the ingredients in the environment and the timing enabled that to happen. Someone like Sir David Brailsford, who talked about for decades really around how he managed to knit that 
into the cycling to get that marginal gains and we you know marginal gains is you know is something that i would imagine came from david brailsford um i know clive woodward would have talked about it in 2003 but he probably got it from to david what marked out brailsford from perhaps some of his other peers that gave him this ability to put all this together Dave's an inspirational person to be around. I think um, the two things that I take from my sort of time of working around him and seeing him operate and you know, also then being in Sky and Ineos, um, Dave's an absolute visionary and he's not afraid to go for stuff. So like he's he's absolutely willing to, to look at like, right, we're going to go for the Giro on tour this year. And like you see the excitement light up in the room with the mechanics, with all those sort of staff. Um, it's just it's just amazing. Do you think he would have al- always have done that, even at the start, before he'd had any successes? Yeah, yeah, I think that's just they. You know, he he's um probably I think as he with his work in Olympic cycling, you gain a lot more confidence around your process and approach. So I think um so he'd always go for that. But then equally where I saw him at his best, I actually, you know, in game day, race day, like like He's able to detach himself from all the behaviours being exhibited. And he's such a brilliant observer. He'd see things playing sometimes, like how the relationship between coaches and riders would be, how relationship with riders and riders. He'd be able to pick those things up, like the mood in the camp and those situations, better than anybody I've seen by just detaching and would be able to just keep things moving on. He'd, he'd know when he needed to intervene, when not just to, to manage those people in those winning behaviours as he ended up sort of particularly calling it. It's a... Uh, is, is the of the people that I've worked with, he's the one like those would be the two things that resonate. He's willing to absolutely go thing back here. But um when it comes to game day, very clinical and detached and but for a logical reason why. Um but the the concept of marginal gains which sort of emerged, actually I think there's a misunderstanding around that um from my perspective, because everyone focused on the fact that they would be doing these 1% things. But I think there were some processes in place that ultimately enabled you to get to a point where that was part of it. So I think um, I've discussed this when we've been at the UK Strength and Condition and Association before. I think it's really misunderstood, the concept of marginal gains, because I think what the team do exceptionally well was performance planning. So at the start of the year, whatever they do, they would really try to understand what it took to be successful and what it took to win that race in that event. The whole the concept, which is now common language, what it takes to win in essence, they, they were had framed that early on. And the thought and detail and relentlessness that went on mapping and understanding what's it got to look like here. So in October in a grand tour, you know, the parkour is released, mapping every stage and every detail, where time's likely to everything, mapping that detail was a relentless process. So the performance planning element of it, and then the thing that the team was amazing about is when situations change, there's like a dynamic triage. So like, right, if that's the plan, what are we actually going to do to take this person from here to here as quickly as we can? The team was always set up to react and respond, like no plan survives the first contact with the enemies, that classic quote. The ability to respond to how that plan is playing itself out was phenomenal. So you, you just imagine, I'll describe a situation. We've got this plan and we've done our gap analysis and we think, God, for this athlete, the thing that's going to make the biggest difference is doing more strength training, real simplistically. So that's like a fundamental element to it. But like, if, if the thing that's going to make a difference is make them strong, you end up with this portfolio of interventions around how we're going to make them strong. So yeah, it's the Pareto effect. So number one is like, let's get in the gym. Um, and so you end up making a list of all these things and it's a, it's a 
concept of economics there's only so much you can do in so much time and the real skill is deciding which things are we going to do to get most return in that period of time so invariably you'd have you'd have this portfolio of interventions to make individuals stronger because that's the thing that's going to make the biggest difference to their performance and you're doing strength training and you're resting right and you're feeding them properly and you're gradually then getting down to the point of well let's add a couple of high risk potentially high return you know things that could give us an extra half percent and so all of that's put together as a package of interventions ultimately to deliver on this performance plan. The thing that marginal gains become was ultimately that one percenter, those like high risk, high, yet they'd miss this process of planning, dynamic triage is the way I sort of call it, um, moving really quickly when things didn't work out, real deliberate detail around what was happening. So like the thought and planning that went into the execution of the interventions was phenomenal. And there was real, how would I describe it? Real intensity around that intent. So this is exactly what we're gonna do. And then it was all in around trying to make those things work. And that was a real, that feedback loop around that process was rapid. And, and for me, that was marginal gains. But everyone focused on, oh, they, they're doing this little thing around, they've reduced 300 grams by putting this Formula One paint on the bike. And I'm like, yeah, the problem was we're going up a big mountain and it's a power to weight ratio thing. And actually, if we can strip the weight out, but they didn't see all the other interventions, which would be fundamental interventions you would do around. Let's strip the guy's weight down as much as possible without losing the power abilities. And that's all about nutrition. And there will be 100 percent intensity around there. And then we're just sneaking around the edges to see if there's anything else to do. But they were generally were sneaking around the edges. So I think that concept of marginal gains is for me been really misunderstood nobody saw the volume of work that went into just getting to a position where you know you could you could try something that was a bit more high risk that if it come off great if it didn't didn't really matter because you had everything else right so um i guess that's what the media ended up cycling and dave to be fair would probably play that game as well um because it there was a bit of psychology around that whole around, around that whole piece as well but yeah i know that's been a long explanation but i do think marginal gains wasn't about was never about those tiny little future thinking little projects they are always a very small element of the portfolio of things you're trying to do to win and it came from your performance planning yeah fundamentally yeah but thinking really deeply about and that started in the first october camp around what are we going to do to win the Giro? what are we going to do to win the grand tour the games moving on what, what are our riders what are the gaps you know, and that was a process of ongoing planning that took months and lots of time, late nights in camp, thinking it through, discussing, debating and valuing that dialogue. You know, sometimes you'd come out of a super long meeting, you had a whole host of conversations. It didn't feel like it moved forward, but it was a massively important part of the process to move forward. And that's, that's the, the hours that went into that is unseen. The consequence, you know, the consequences, you had an amazing performance plan that could react really quickly to what was emerging in front of you. You had plan B, C, D and E, you know, and all of that, all of that scenarios made you, you know, made you do. And in some respects, the best scenario of it coming to life was in a grand tour when Chris unfortunately had his super bad accident um, when he crashed into the wall in his time trial bike. Um, and then Geraint got injured and Egan Bernal stops up, steps up and they win the tour. And he was like, if you think about it, the plan never really changed. Yes, he had some unique circumstances. But what was going to win that event meant that could be applied to a different individual. Yeah, you've explained it brilliantly. If we were to pare it down a little bit to somebody 
that's going to be listening to this just before they're sitting down with their coaches for the under 15 season or, you know, a lower level and they want to do their plan. If you were to give them two or three simple tools to, to make that plan as successful as, as it could be for them at a lower level, what would it be? Yeah, I think that first thing start at the end is the, the first message. So, and at the end, maybe look, the kids just want to have a brilliant, enjoyable experience and connect with their friends. So if that's what you're trying to achieve, that's, that's, the, that's the outcome. And you know, all, all eyes on that in some respects. So start at the end and really think about the type of experiences and environments you want to create. And, you know, if it's with children or adults, that's a two-way dialogue about really trying to get clarity around what that looks like and then be really clear about the type of behaviours and what it may look like and feel like for individuals. So that's number one. Um, and then so, so you start at the end and then I guess the second thing is it, the journey isn't straight. The journey isn't a linear experience. So I think just live every moment, try something, live it. If it doesn't work, try something else. That's okay. It's a bit like recognizing that in sport, the journey's very unpredictable. It's very non-linear. It's very dynamic. And the only way you can really learn from it, um, there's a guy, Professor Dave Snowden, I don't know if you've heard of him. So he talks about the nature of systems and you know, in complex systems, the way you learn from it, he would talk is probe, sense, respond. So um, what he means there is like, try something out there. You only learn from it once you've done something from it. It's not cause and effect. So um, just be willing to explore and experiment would be, you know, the fundamental second, because that's the nature of development. So be really clear, start at the end and then um, go and experiment and explore um, how you're going to go and create those end experiences. And um, every time you design an experience, make sure you feedback and learn from it and then have another go. And that feedback loop for you, would it be as simple as uh, fail, learn, adapt, innovate? Is that basically how you would? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it has to be anything more complex than that. Certainly like if I take that extreme situation, well, not extreme situation, the situation of you've got kids that have come for a different, different, like they're just there for all sports social, but they're to really have a bit of fun and create some friendships. I think um, you design it a little bit different where you'd encourage them to go and try stuff. And you'd celebrate the fact that they've tried something. You wouldn't celebrate the outcome. You celebrate the fact that they've been brave enough, that A, you've created an environment safe enough for them to try and not feel they're going to be ridiculed. You'll celebrate the fact they've been willing to do that. You're less worried about the outcome. And it's always about, God, what do we get from that? And how can we use that to do something different next time? So, yeah, ab- absolutely. And this is just, it's not overly complex. And I think you can make it complex in that sense. But, yeah, that would be, that would be my message. So start at the end engage with your players, students, whoever that is, to really think about what that is, and then go explore and experiment. And I think so staying connected to that purpose is really, really important. That leads me perhaps to the topic of culture, because although your background is, as you started your journey was statistical and data-driven, you obviously value culture, which is a difficult thing to put a number on. And that's probably why it's you know, psychological safety is one of the hot topics at the moment, even though it's been around for a while now, because people see the value in creating the right culture. What for you, what for you is really important in culture? What's a non-negotiable or fundamental? It's a good point. What's fundamental in that? I think, uh, I think culture needs to be self-defined. That makes sense. And I think it's different for different people in different situations and circumstances. So what's important, I think, for people to own it, and therefore to live by it, it's got to be really meaningful to them. 
and they've got to be able to connect with it. We see some of the work that's been done, you know, around belonging and, you know, and in essence, what they're trying to do in that thing is create some emotional connection to something. For a lot of people, you know, what the New Zealand All Blacks did about connecting to the, the history and heritage and, you know, and, and what the work around belonging is, is fundamentally about that. I think the really important thing around culture is you've got to find that emotional connection to something. Um, like, I, I really like that work that's been done in that space. And it's something that really resonates with me in the current place of work now, but it's not the only way. But I think the thing is, you're trying to create that emotional connection. So that's fundamental as part of any culture. Because I think that that's internally what will get you out of bed every day because you really believe in that aspect of it. You just need to find what that emotional connection is about why people are there or find something that everyone can connect to. That, that emotional piece, I think, is fundamental. And I think then once you find that, it's therefore the behaviours you deliver that bring that to life. And the thing that I try to think about now, because I think in the environment I'm at Millfield School, there's amazing history and heritage, very young. There's a really strong culture around that piece that you, I think it comes back to one of your first questions about what's on my mind at the moment. When I think about this culture, particularly because it's something else on my mind, the thing I'm thinking about, how can you make it scalable as well? So most of the examples we read about, like if you take the All Blacks, they are small teams, small numbers of people. What happens? How do you do that when you're an organization of 500 people? How do you create that connection to one thing? I don't think it is possible on that scale would be my, my urgent thought. So you have to think quite differently how you do that. Um, and and th there's a guy called Robin Dunbar. He's a social anthropologist from Oxford University. He's got something called Dunbar's Number. He, he talks about these things about your close family. Um, it's really worth a good read if nobody's done it. He talks about clans and tribes. And his work came to fruition over the time, well, got, got a lot more publicity and coverage during the time of the lockdown because it's about connection. He was arguing that there's only so many people ever in your network you can stay connected to and close to. Um, and so I think about that in relation to culture, actually. Like, so there's only really to create a culture that people genuinely can live by. I think there's a limit to the number of people that could be part of that. And so then in a massive organisation where you have lots of teams of teams, um, how can you get that same thing scalable? And I, I don't think you can. And I think individual groups, therefore, need to bring it to life in their own world and live it that way. And I think that's OK. What about when you talked about when somebody doesn't do something that's been agreed and how you deal with that? Have you got any suggestions or tools that you use? I think the critical piece, you need to have had those conversations in advance when you're really thinking and discussing it and you're in the ongoing dialogue. So when it does happen, it's not a surprise and or in some ways, when you're giving feedback, you haven't aggravated that chip, which invariably what does happen, you know, so I, I don't understand how, how to give you the right feedback that you're taking the right way to reflect and recognise it. So that, that would be my key thing. I think you just need to make sure you've had those advanced conversations to manage it. And, um, and then everyone's sort of unique. And like, I've got it wrong. I'm going to, I can't pretend that I haven't. And I've hopefully learned from those where I'm a lot more thoughtful now and I'm in the planning around, let's make sure we've spoken about what we're going to do when this doesn't happen because it will it will go wrong at some point it's amazing how how many topics around high performance still circle back to understanding the individual and chatting more to them it's um it, it's a constant really and over the last few over your your career to date 
you must have thought quite a lot around your leadership and how that's evolved because you've had different, very different environments where you've had to lead in, whether that's been, you know, heading up the research and innovation and those type of um, bringing people in from outside and in and the collaboration piece to then going to the RFU and working with departments and athletes. And now uh, Millfield, uh, uh, you know, one of the leading um, boarding schools in the world and probably one of the, if not the leading sports school in the country um leadership for you has got to have got you thinking about how you how you see it now and i guess a lot of my views around that have been influenced by what's got the best out of me um so uh i I think invariably i'm naturally very curious individual um and and i like to explore and experiment and i i believe i get the best out of me when i've got autonomy and I guess the experiences of others that have been around, so people that inspire. So those sorts of ways of leading and managing and there's a cross around those, I think is, is the one that I associate with, but I do recognize that doesn't appeal to everybody. So for me, leadership is about those around you, giving them the autonomy to excel and grow. I think a lot of society, a lot of people I work with, whether that's just in sport or even in this environment, have genuinely been highly driven and just given the right frameworks and autonomy, they excel. And for me, it's my responsibility as a leader is creating those environments to enable that to happen. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's the stuff that I think about. And I, I want people to feel like they've got autonomy to do that. And they can go and explore and experiment. And we celebrate failure. There's some great management research showing that celebrating failure is more likely to lead to learning and behavior change. So, I mean, those, those are the things that I inherently believe in as a leader, but I, don't, I realize that doesn't work for everybody. You know, and at times there's other individuals I've worked with, particularly in this environment in school, where they want me to be more dictatorial in that sense, but that's just not me. I'm really uncomfortable with it. And so that, that's, I'm trying to work with those individuals to give them that autonomy and flexibility because I think you can grow more um and therefore you own a lot more of your journey so those are the you know that that autonomy frameworks and principles that people can work within give a lot of people a respect um that for me is the leadership that i prefer and the leader the way i like i try to lead and for you then what would you talked about steve peters and um his you know best-selling book that talks about your chimp and your prefrontal cortex that um gets you to do things that you don't want to do when you're angry or whatever's caused it to what gets your chimp out oh um good, good one oh i guess what the blockers is the way i call it like um the naysayers uh glass empty all, all of that like um yeah so that that does and what i've learned to do though is box my chimp if that makes sense and just realize this is a different perspective on the problem and um and think about it in a slightly different way so yeah i've I've sort of learned to avoid that aggravation now. And my first port of call when those things happen is to go back and think, I need to do this differently. Uh, So I'm obviously not resonating or haven't explained well enough what I'm trying to do. My first port of call is it's my responsibility to ensure that I get that information over in the right way. So it's a compelling enough argument. So yeah, that's the thing that gets my chin out. Um, But my immediate response to that is, I didn't do that well enough. Maybe that's just the nature of me. So I need to rethink how I reframe this in a way that appeals to them. So it's that, that idea of how do you put yourselves into their shoes now that they really understand and what else have I got to do 
in a non-emotional way. So in a very logical way that helps them understand it. There's a ton of stuff we've talked about here. And um, when, when we had a chat before the conversation today, we talked about dealing with failure. And I, thought, I think you've, you've mentioned that really well. And working in multidisciplinary teams, we've touched upon. But again, for the listeners that will be both working remotely and across different departments, often in lots of different roles that they'll have. How do you approach that? You know, is it a strength for you to to work in a multidisciplinary team to get the best out of everybody? And how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, I love working with people who've got different skill sets and very different perspectives on things. Just a complete respect for uh, those skill sets that otherwise you don't have. I think, um, so I, I love those types of, especially enologists, you know, like just, just put some super smart people in a room, um, present a problem and just like fire the thing up let's throw a hand grenade in let's see where it goes i'm really comfortable with those things um but i think what's important around multidisciplinary teams i think it tend to be common practice now but in the early years of the sports system is um it comes back to that point what does the end look like and who is this for and how can we describe that in a functional context so as a multidisciplinary team say around an athlete um it comes back to that starting at the end piece it's what is it that individual needs to do to be successful and maybe that first statement is they've got to ride this time and in the opening lap of the team sprint. So there's a really well-defined functional problem as opposed to the problem being, oh, they're not strong enough. Because I'm like, actually, that's not the problem we're trying to solve. The problem we're trying to solve in the real world at a functional level is this one. So, And there's a, there's a significant skill set in being able to define that problem in a functional way that's meaningful to the end user. Because as an athlete, they're not okay. I think you mentioned it earlier, you really care about what I have to do and you're able to articulate it in the way I think in the language that I'm working on. So a really good multiple. And, and then then it's the job of that team to really be able to understand all the factors that may influence that. And I love to see those individual specialists do it in their own domain. And then there's a real arc to decide. And so where are we going to put our money? So this is the problem we're trying to solve. We've got these 10 smart people, super whiz kids around the table. The psych has said this, the physiologist has said this, and we've got all of these intervention sets that we can do and all these coaching interventions, but we've only got three months. Where are we going to put our money? That uncertainty I love. And that's where, you know, coaches earn their money really, because I think there's so much ology and so much science, so many interventions, so many ideas around improving things. Ultimately, there's only, it's a law of economics. You've got so much money, so much time. How are you going to get the biggest bang from buck from there? And I think the coaches that repeatedly deliver success or repeatedly deliver different athletes really understand what things when in the context of that environment and where to, where to put their money. You know, in a, they're like they're like joint they're like venture capitalists, aren't they? Where am I going to put my money to get the biggest bang for return? So, in a multidisciplinary team, significant time and effort on defining and understanding that problem. Um, in a functional way and then neologist skills can come to life um, as opposed to just thinking well my one job is to give you an extra 20k in a squat um, and that like so what you know what does that mean in the context of what we're trying to achieve functionally um, and that's the way I I guess I like to work and I, th I think that's common practice now really relative to a sports system because it's that's the way it emerged but I'd like to think we're part of the early group that we're really trying to take that approach you have so much knowledge around everything. Do you still rely on your gut to make a call on some of these things? Yeah, you have to. 
I think that's it. Well, I would, I would call, it's it's um, deep wisdom, isn't it, and experience. But I'd, um, you may have a real feel that that's the right direction to go. Um, but I'd always check that thinking with other experienced individuals. So I guess I val- tend to validate that observation and thought process a lot more than I used to. But yeah, there's no doubt intuition. And there's some great books on intuition and the science of intuition and the wisdom around all that field. But um, I would that certainly may drive my, drive my cognitive bias. What I'm much better at now is testing that thinking. And I don't mind people telling me if it's a crock of something. No, you like you missed the plot, or so. So that's okay. I'm really comfortable with that. But um, yeah, intuition, because I can explain with a bit of science every now and again. I get excited, but because there's some really good thinking around that, I genuinely believe it's a thing. And there's no doubt that that's that is a it's a skill, it's a trained skill, but it's something that I would use in my decision making at times. Is there anything that you see in in modern sport at the moment that a lot of people are doing, and you're thinking, why are they all doing that? Why are they all using that? Yeah, so I'd love, best experiment ever. Um, I'd love to take two teams and one team to have no objective measurement or tracking system. So absolutely none. And they make all their decisions based on conversations, intuition, versus a team that's got all the measurement criteria in the world. They're tracking everything, GPSing, everything, you know. And I'd love to see over a period of time build the perfect experiment whether fundamentally one team uh, got more injuries less injuries in those situations so the amalgamation like because of the emergence of sensor technologies got so small now it's wearable bloody measuring everything that we could do in the world to be honest and i get it's I, I genuinely think to myself actually let's run that experiment that would be amazing wouldn't it and my gut intuition would be there'd be very little difference and i don't know if i if I think I did ask you to if you've got any favorite books that you'd suggest to our listeners. Oh, uh, god, yeah, good question. Um, you've already mentioned a load of resources that, yeah, I think, um, I, I think when we started the conversation earlier, I, I um, I spoke about that idea that I think there's so much more to learn from teaching into coaching and vice versa. And uh, there's a book that I it's not easy to read, but if you're really interested in learning and some of the seminal work in learning to really think how that impacts you as a coach. As a guy called Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick, they've got a book around, which is the seminal papers and the seminal bits of work that was done about how learning works. So Kirshner and Hendrick would be one that I would definitely get into. Um, there are all the other classics, which people will be, um, you know, interested, team of teams, McChrystal's work. I think all of that stuff's really interesting around leadership. Um, and one of the ones around culture, which I've been fascinated by, and, and in my time in sport, I never get the opportunity to do it. Um, there's a guy called Alex Pennon at MIT, who uh, did a lot of work around the principle of social physics, which was, and it's connected to connection and cultures. Um, and they did some amazing work. And I do think it is because this is where I think the emergence of data was, in, was useful in understanding social behaviours. So what they're able to do is quantify their level of connection among groups of people through email traffic, phone, phones, proximity sensors. So when you're physically together um, and really quantify connection in groups and flow of information and we're able to show you know, in essence, like the greater the connection and flow of information, the more high performing. And it was done in interesting domains. And I always wanted to run that experiment in my R&I hat on in sport. So you imagine being able to do that. So that's where you take all that unstructured data 
over time and really try to quantify that level of connection among groups. So here's Alex Pentland's social physics sort of describes all the underpinning work at MIT that they did in that space. And that's because I, and I just, uh, it's not a regret. I just never got a willing enough sample group that wanted to do that over periods of time, but I'd love to get into that because that's in some ways that's quantifying high performing teams. You know, and, and to be able to do that through those that social connection that goes on and our ability to quantify it, you can imagine connecting all that unstructured data, video, pro, yeah, just you'd need to do it. Um, I'm fascinated by it because I, I guess a good scientist likes to disprove their theories. So I want to test it to disprove it. But yeah, that Alex Pentland's social physics, go and have a read. It's really interesting around that cultural piece. Um, Robin Dunbar's work around the evolution of culture. So he's the social anthropologist. I mentioned Paul Kirsch and Carl Hendricks work around those seminal works around education and pedagogy um, and the leadership one, Jim McChrystal's one team of teams is one that really uh, I got into and um, turned the boat around, turned the ship around. I think I can't remember now that one. So those ones are similar around leader, leader, you know, not command and control. And that's the leadership principles that I really buy into. So, yeah, there's there's four or five that um, I'll keep you busy. Yeah, there's loads. And um, when you talked about Alex Pentland, I think, is, is the principles of social physics. I think you're onto something there because that's that's where I'm seeing my head's going towards cohesion and collaboration around measuring that and high performing teams and that that could have more value than GPS meets per minute and meets per second and accelerations and all of that load. For me, there's some stuff around that um, that even the bottom line telling it to an owner it's going to save you money with retention if you look at cohesion and you know when you're hiring and firing and selecting and um in one of the previous podcasts we talked about the Bayern Munich mirage which is um with Bayern Munich that they often will sell their players for very high salaries and they'll underperform um at the clubs they go to because Bayern have got from the style they've played all the way up they've got cohesion very high cohesion that's created high success around their teamwork and that doesn't happen when they disappear somewhere so it actually benefits them on two two levels and there's 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 tons in that what about any documentaries or films anything that that you love i'm watching the la lakers dynasty at the moment but that's not appropriate for everybody um, but yeah the michael johnson one i sort of loved and enjoyed that um you know, I love the documentaries like Cheer. I don't know if you've watched that one on Netflix. No, I haven't. Um, that's fascinating insight really around what is a high-performing environment and the behaviours that go on in around those, like Last Chance You. Like, those are the ones that I sort of got into, that docu-series. And a lot of it is probably because it's about people, it's emotional, it's real. That's the type of stuff that I sort of connect to and try to try to learn from. And in 2012, I think, I, I can't remember where I found I think I found it on your LinkedIn you had two quotes that you used in a presentation. Do, do you remember them? Or have you got a favourite quote? No, I mean, um, the, the one that I actually adhere to, and I stole it from Frank Dick, because I fundamentally believe it true, that the only sustainable competitive advantage you can maintain is to learn faster than the opposition. I think uh, it's brilliant. And I think, in essence, it what sums it up. We have so much information and knowledge, or information available now. How do you filter that to turn that to knowledge and wisdom? And it really is about your ability to filter and test ideas in your concept and movement. So that pace of movement, the acceleration piece, I think is fundamental. So that that's one that has always resonated with me and that I philosophically genuinely believe in, especially at a high performance end. Everyone, I think, now has got access to similar 
information, knowledge, insight, but it's about how you use it, how quickly you can get it into your space. Yeah, that's a great quote to finish on. The other one was Henry Ford that you you had used. Um, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah, and that yeah, that, that's a brilliant that, that story. Isn't it claim from the eye that comes to really understanding the problem again, where people often move to solutions, and and that one is that one is interesting because it's about like you, people wanted to get to A to B quite quickly, and of course the only way they thought A to B was faster horses. They didn't even know the opportunity was motor cars, you know. And I think it comes to that point. Or it, the, the essence of that one is really understanding the problem, um, because by understanding that, you can be a bit more creative around looking at those solutions. And it's dead right. Sometimes your clients or users may not know what's possible and feasible. So I think it it creates that type of mindset, which is focus on the problem, you know, and immerse yourself around super smart people because there may be ways of solving this one they never thought were possible. That last line, finding solutions for a problem that you never might have thought possible, sums up a lot of the conversation you've just listened to. The more you listen to the guests I speak to, the stronger the correlation between success and experiences. Now to lay it out really simply, his learning has come from academia, the jobs he's had and the interactions, conversations and experiences he's gained from the people, the problems and the progress he's met along that path. I'm really thankful to Scott, another chat that could have gone on for a long time with Curiosity front and centre. And I think you can see why I pestered him all those years ago to help provide some innovative thinking for me and my staff and players. As always, the resources we mentioned in the programme will be listed in the show notes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And if you haven't subscribed to the pod yet, click on the follow button on Apple or on your podcast player so that you get a notification when the latest show is available. Please keep those ratings and reviews coming and it would be great to get your suggestions for any future guests. My Twitter, LinkedIn or website pages are probably best for that. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.